The following audio is from Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com. It's good to worship in the house of the Lord this morning. Amen? Amen. You know, coming back to Abner Creek is, is in many ways like coming home for, for Savannah and I. We grew up in a lot of ways out of childhood into adulthood in this church. We came started coming here as sophomores at North Greenville University, and, and we found a home here. We were discipled here. We were loved here. We found family here. The fact that I'm standing before you today is in itself a work of the Lord as He has used people in this church to raise me up and to, to help train and disciple me in ministry. The Lord is good. And I know that right this minute that the fact that I'm here today is even a sign of the fact that y'all are in transition, in a time of transition in this church. But God is good. And as y'all search for the next man to call as pastor and to lead this congregation to glorify God and make disciples, I am also very confident and thankful for the men that God has raised up to lead you in this time. I want to encourage you to pray for these men. I'm thankful for your deacons, men who hold fast to the word of God and who seek his wisdom. I'm thankful for Pastor Matt, who is a very dear friend of mine, a man who is full of wisdom beyond his years. And I encourage you to pray for Matt as he works tirelessly to lead your youth as well as to the many other tasks that he's undertaken during this time. He's undertaken a task that would give many more seasoned pastors a, a great deal of fear and uncertainty. Yet he's told me that during this time his goal is to simply love you as a congregation and to point you to the gospel. So I encourage you to pray for him. Pray for the man who will come and who will lead this church and pray for the man who is faithfully serving here. As a pastor, there is nothing more that we covet than your prayers. I encourage you to open your Bible to God's Word as we, as we re- read Romans 10, verses 1 through 17. Today I want to remind you that faith is a gift from God that comes by hearing. It's not of your own works, it's through the righteousness of Christ. There's nothing that you do to earn it. Yet that faith and that righteousness, that righteousness that comes also comes with a commission. And it's your role to get out there and take the gospel to your neighbors. So what we see here in Romans 10, verses 1 through 17, Paul is continuing an argument from Romans 9. And so he's talking about the people of Israel in this passage. He says, Brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. For I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. For being ignorant of the righteousness of God and seeking to establish their own, they did not submit to God's righteousness. For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you, in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. Because if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. For the scripture says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. 
For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing His riches on all who call on Him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on Him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in Him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel. For Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes by hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. Let's pray. God, may the reading of your word bring about understanding as we seek to greater, come to a greater knowledge of, of that which you have given us. May you be glorified. Amen. So the first thing I want to point out today is that, that righteousness, it doesn't come by our own efforts. See, I want you to think about verses 1 through 3 as we get started. In this section, Paul tells the, the Roman church that he earnestly prays for the salvation of the Israelites. He says, brothers, my heart's desire and prayer to God for them is that they may be saved. And this is arising out of Paul's deep love for the people of Israel and his desire that they would respond to the good news of Jesus Christ. And that should remind us that we are to pray fervently for the lost, even as we take steps to build relationships with them and to share the gospel with them. In other words, pray for your unsaved friends. Now say that very carefully, your unsaved friends. See, the point here is that you should be going out into the world and making friends who are not believers. Because if you don't, how will you have enough of a relationship to, talk, to tell somebody the good news of the gospel? Your job as a believer is to go into the world. Only God has the power to change hearts, and so we should be constantly covering them with prayer. And Paul continues, like many people today, he says that he can testify, he says, I can testify them about, about them that they have zeal for God, but not according to knowledge since they are ignorant of the righteousness of God and attempted to establish their own righteousness. They have not submitted to God's righteousness. See, like many people in our world today, the Israelites showed a lot of passion in their efforts to please God. Yet they were, as Paul says, ignorant of the righteousness of God because they were selfishly seeking to establish their own righteousness. And that's a reminder for us that any righteousness that we pursue outside of God's righteousness is at its core pursuit of self-righteous folly. All the zeal in the world is absolutely meaningless if it's not directed at God. You can look at some of the fastest growing religions in the world today, Mormonism and Islam. Vastly different religions. However, at the core, both of them say, do this and do better and you will please God. At its core, Christianity says no. Doing better will not please God. You can have a lot of zeal in, in Islam. You know, you follow the five pillars of Islam and, and in the end, Allah might be pleased is what they say. You hope that your scale balances out. With Mormonism, it's the same way. In fact, we have a, my wife and I have a very, very close friend who, who is an ex-Mormon. And she said that what she experienced was a growing, like she began to hate God because she couldn't understand how she could do all these things and earn his love. Why would he make her earn his love? You see, the God of the Bible tells us that 
we can't earn our righteousness. We can't earn his love. He gives us his love freely. The Jews are described as zealous, and that means they're very pious. Colin Cruz says that this zeal denoted passionate concern for God's honor and law, often to the point of violence, and that prior to his conversion, Paul himself was, quote, zealous for God. Paul says so in in Philippians 3.6. He says, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. If Paul, a man who is considered himself righteous under the law, can also describe himself as the chief of sinners, then obviously the righteousness of the law is not enough. That's why Paul says that the Israelites' pursuit of their own righteousness was, in fact, rebellion against God, because they were not submitting to God's righteousness. That's why verse 4 kind of serves as a tipping point in this passage. He says, For Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. The era of the law is fulfilled with Christ's atonement, and now righteousness is given to all who believe in him. And that's amazing news because righteousness is no longer gained under the law. In fact, righteousness, the, the righteousness that the Israelites treasured under the law, any righteousness that they did gain in their, was only a gift from God. They didn't earn it. The sacrificial system was a type and shadow of the sacrifice of Christ. That's why it was necessary for them to repeat these rituals over and over. The author of Hebrews tells us this. He says in Hebrews 10.8, You have neither desired nor taken pleasure in sacrifices and offerings and burnt offerings and sin offerings. These are offered according to the law. See, because of that, we can say that righteousness, therefore, comes from Christ alone. The keeping of the law does not lead to eternal life because it cannot lead to eternal life. And that's what Paul works through in the next section. Verses 5 through 8 say, For Moses writes about the righteousness that is based on the law, that the person who does the commandments shall live by them. But the righteousness based on faith says, Do not say in your heart who will ascend into heaven, that is to bring Christ down, or who will descend into the abyss, that is to bring Christ up from the dead. But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith that we proclaim. So here's where Paul gets, gets a little bit into the background of the law. See, he quotes Leviticus 18.5, and that introduces a number of moral and sexual prohibitions that if the people of Israel followed would result in continued enjoyment of life in the promised land. Tom Schreiner, who's a, a professor at Southern Seminary and a prolific commentary writer, he said that the earlier context of Romans 9 indicates that Paul is quoting this passage to reiterate the righteousness that comes merely from obedience to the law results only in physical life, unlike the righteousness based on faith, which brings right life in the new age. See, A, B, and C will not result in, in eternal life. Following this law, that law, and all these other laws will not result in eternal life. You may have a good life if you follow the law of God, but what is a good life in the present without a good life in the eternity? What is a good life in the present if what you are doing is not pleasing God? Because Scripture tells us that there is nothing that we can do to please God. Our best works are but filthy rags in God's eyes. So the righteousness that comes that can please God only comes from Christ. 
It may seem hard to understand this, context, this section of Scripture in our context, but Paul is a former Pharisee and a scholar who was well-versed in the Old Testament writings. So he makes clever use of Deuteronomy 30, 11 through 14. And in this passage, Moses is telling people, look, the law that he commands is not far off. It's not too hard for you to understand. Moses says it's not in heaven, so that you have to climb to heaven to, to follow it. It's not across the sea, so that you have to cross an ocean to, to follow it. It's in your heart and in your mind and in your mouth and in your heart so that you can do it. And just as Moses tried to convince the observance of the, that the Israelites that the observance of the law did not demand them to scale the heights across the sea, so Paul plays on Moses' words, applying them in an accommodated sense to Christ himself. Joseph Fitzmaier says that the heights have been scaled and the depths have been plumbed for Christ has come down to the world of humanity and has been raised from the dead. To attain the status of uprightness before God, no one is being asked to bring about an incarnation or a resurrection. One is only asked to accept in faith what has already been done for humanity and to associate oneself with Christ incarnate who was raised from the dead. In other words, Paul is reminding the people of Israel that it is finished. He's reminding the church of Rome that it is finished. There is nothing left to be done by works. There's no righteousness to attain. There's no sacrifices to bring about the forgiveness of sins because it was completed at the cross. When you and I sing that Jesus paid it all, we echo the sentiment found in this passage because there is nothing required of anyone that God redeems except to respond in faith to the effectual call of the gospel. That's why Paul says next that if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. One believes with the heart resulting in salvation, Paul says, and one confesses with the mouth, or excuse me, one believes with the heart resulting in righteousness and one confesses with the mouth resulting in salvation. See, when you confess that Jesus is Lord and Savior, you do so by the power of the Holy Spirit already at work within you. The righteousness and salvation that results from confessing Jesus as Lord is not of yourself, but as Ephesians 2 says, is the free gift of God so that no one may boast. That's why the righteousness of the law that the Israelites sought was not the righteousness of God, but was selfish, because they were seeking to fulfill their own righteousness. Instead of seeking after the righteousness of God that was found in Christ and foreshadowed in the law. So Paul makes this argument here that, that righteousness comes through Christ alone. And that culminates in the glorious good news of the gospel and the fact that we are saved by grace alone through faith alone. But what does it mean? How do you apply that to your life? Where do you go from there? You can say, I was, I was saved by righteousness alone. You, it was not of your own works. And so one way to conclude is to say, well, I didn't do anything to be saved, so now I don't have to do anything as a Christian. And that's the wrong conclusion, because that's not what's found later on in, in the next place that Paul goes in this passage. He comes out and applies what we've learned, that, that righteousness comes by faith alone, and how we are to go about our lives because of it. See, righteousness coming by faith alone means that believers may rest in the faithfulness of God. Verse 11 says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. So if you're like me, 
and you struggle with a massive level of anxiety and perfectionism, you can take a deep breath. You can relax just a little bit. So you didn't earn your righteousness. And so you cannot lose the righteousness that was given to you by God. In fact, that's why Jonathan Edwards once said that you contribute nothing to your salvation except the sin which made it necessary. You didn't earn it. You didn't deserve it. There was nothing that you did to earn it because you were a rebellious creature who spat in the face of God. At least I know I was. At least I know that's what's in my heart. What comes naturally to me is only rebellion. What comes naturally to me is not to submit to the will of God and to follow His law, but to submit to my own will and to follow my own desires. That's the natural man. Jesus says that there's none good. And if you take an honest look at your life before salvation, I believe you'll see the same thing that I see in my own heart. Rebellion against our Creator. That's the bad news. The bad news is that we are all rebellious, but the good news is the gospel. You don't look for righteousness and find it somewhere deep in your heart. Our culture tells us to look within yourself and determine who you will be. Look within yourself and find the strength that you need to get through life. Look within yourself to see how to live. But there's nothing good within us. Salvation isn't hiding in your cardiac muscle. Salvation is only found in the shed blood of Christ. And you who are believers who have been called out of sin and death are now called sons and daughters of God. And that's a privilege that has been granted to you that, has, that now applies every promise of God that he gives to his children to you. And the one thing that you cannot miss if you read through the scriptures, I know at, at, at State Street what we're doing is we're going through the gospel project. One of the things that I love about the Gospel Project Sunday School class is that it takes you through the entire story of the Bible in three years. Every week you, you, read, you read different chapters. You start in Genesis and you end in Revelation. And I love that because every week it applies what is going on in this passage and looks forward, if you're in the Old Testament, to Christ or looks back, if you're in the New Testament, to what happened on the cross. And I believe that's important because the scriptures tell us that that is the central point. And God keeps his promises. So God will come through. No matter what circumstances surround you right now, God is working all things for his glory and for our ultimate good, even if that good is invisible. See, I'm watching that reality play itself out right now in the lives of, of one of the other pastors at State Street. Bobby Baston is our youth pastor, and he, he told me that I could share this with y'all um, something he shared with our church as well. His dad, a few months ago, was diagnosed with, with severe brain tumors, cancerous cells that grew rapidly. He had four of them in his brain, and, and while he had brain surgery that was able to remove these tumors and, and some, some other techniques were able to get rid of the tumors, there's still cancer throughout his body, and he's suffering greatly for it. This is a man who, who in, before December... He was still playing golf every weekend. Bobby's brother owns a granite business. He was still helping his son work in his granite business. Now he's confined to a wheelchair. Now he's confined to a wheelchair because he cannot muster the strength to walk across the room. So why do I tell you this? 
because this man and his family may be struggling right now. His name's Mike. Mike is struggling because he has gone from being healthy to who knows how long he has left. But what do I know? What do I see? I see Bobby and Mike and his family leaning into God, leaning into the promises of God because God is sovereign and he will bring healing to Mike, whether it's in this life or in eternity. We don't know how long he has left, but their faith will not be put to shame because God has promised to make all things new in the end and he will not abandon his children. And so you and I can rest in the promises of God because God is good. As we continue into worship, verses 12 and 13, Paul says, For there is no distinction between Jew and Greek. For the same Lord is Lord of all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him. For everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. So Paul's spending a lot of time here talking to the people of Israel or about the people of Israel. But you have to remember that this is a letter written to the church at Rome. And while we don't know everything about the church at Rome, we do know that it was made up of Jews and Gentiles, Christians who who came from different ethnicities, who came from different social strata, who came from different religious backgrounds, all kinds of things. And a lot of times there were, you can look through Acts and you can see there was some conflict between those who were, who were former Jews and, who were, and those who were Gentiles because they didn't quite, they were trying to figure out how, whether or not, you know, do we have the Gentiles follow every letter of the law? Are we supposed to follow every letter of the law? And, and there were a lot of questions that had to be asked because of the change that had been wrought by Christ. But Paul's exhortation here is that the previous separation of Jew and Greek is no longer in effect. The people of God are no longer an ethnicity. They're no longer bound by by family history, but by the common threads of the gospel and the Holy Spirit. See, salvation's not coming through sacrifice. It's not coming through the law. It's not coming through your genealogy. It's by calling on the name of the Lord because salvation never came through any of these things. So the gospel is for all people. And there's so many ways that we can apply that to our current cultural moment. But I want to remind you that the gospel is for all who respond in faith. We don't know who will and who will not respond in faith. So we have to share the gospel. We're commanded to share the gospel with everyone, no matter their race, their culture, their language, their nationality, their sexuality. We're called to be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel. Whether or not you look like somebody, think like them, dress like them, or talk like them, you are commanded to take the gospel to all people. Get uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel. You want to talk about getting uncomfortable? I want to tell you a story. Rosaria Butterfield is a Christian writer, and she wrote a fantastic book called The Gospel Comes with a House Key. I encourage all of you to to take a look at it at some point. Let me tell you her background. She describes her conversion as a train wreck. This is her story. Raised and educated in liberal Catholic settings, Rosaria fell in love with the world of words. In her late 20s, allured by feminist philosophy and LGBT advocacy, she adopted a lesbian identity. She then served in the the English Department and Women's Studies program as a PhD at Syracuse University, 
from 1992 to 2002. Her primary academic focus, 19th century literature, informed by Freud, specializing in queer theory. She advised the LGBT student group. She wrote Syracuse University's policy for same-sex couples and actively lobbied for LGBT aims alongside her partner. In 1997, while researching the religious right and what she said, quote, their politics of hatred against people like me, she wrote an article against the Promise Keepers. And a response to that article triggered a meeting with Ken Smith, who first became a resource on the religious right, then a confidant, and then a friend. In 1999, after repeatedly reading the Bible in large chunks for her research, Rosaria converted to Christianity. And she describes that conversion as having cataclysmic fallout in which she lost, quote, everything but the dog, yet gained eternal life in Christ. So do you think the pastor that ministered to her was ever uncomfortable with her, her beliefs or her actions? Of course he was. Of course he was. Did that stop him? No. Why would it? Savannah and I have, have found ourselves entering into this, this need to be uncomfortable for the sake of the gospel recently. A few months ago, we decided that we, we felt the Lord calling us to start a Bible study in our home. And this Bible study was focused on, on reaching some couples that were in our church that had recently started coming. So this happened, and, and we decided to start it, and you know all these things that go into it. We have a two-and-a-half-year-old. Toddlers make messes, so that means that once a week we have to make sure that our house is, is clean enough to see, to have people in it. We have to open up our home every week. But we still felt God calling us to do so. Then guess who comes to our Bible study? We have a former Mormon. We have a veteran who suffered from massive PTSD. We have a former secular Jew. These are all people from various backgrounds that have come into our home and we have developed relationships with them. Quite frankly, I would just say that it's by accident, but I know that, that, that God has ordained it to be so, so that we can go and take the gospel to them. We've had you know, several people just learning how to become Christians, learning how to be believers, and it's uncomfortable. We're having to work through you know, what's the differences between Mormon theology and, and Christianity? We're having to work through all of these things so that we can tr teach these new believers how to apply this, the gospel to their lives and take it with them. And see, that's the thing that we need to do. We need to make sure that we never look at our neighbor down the street and say, no, I don't think he's worth the gospel. Because you and I cannot be gatekeepers for the gospel. Christ himself tells us that he is the gate, that he is the good shepherd, that his sheep know his name. And you don't know who his sheep are. You don't know which of his sheep have fallen so far into sin that they barely look like sheep anymore. No matter how far they've fallen, whether it be alcoholism, drug youth, atheism, or any other sinful identity that, that they use in a desperate attempt to eat some form of meaning out of what they see as their meaningless existence. 
Just over a year ago, Billy Graham passed away. He was a man who, who made a lot of effort, did a lot of things for the kingdom. And all the, you know, one of the things that I've heard growing up is, well, who's going to be the next Billy Graham? You know, is it going to be this pastor or that pastor? I posit to you today that the next great evangelists of our society could this very moment be sitting in a terrorist training camp. He very well may be ready to commit all sorts of atrocities in the name of a false god. You might say, well, that's kind of odd. But before you dismiss that image, let me remind you that that's Paul. Before his conversion, he was breathing murderous threats against Christianity and on his way to Damascus to kill Christians. And God then transforms him by the power of the gospel and uses him to create this massive missionary effort in the early church. You might say, okay, what's my role in all this? How do we apply this whole discourse of righteousness through the law and righteousness through Christ? And so finally, the thing that we have to emphasize is that you have been commanded to take the gospel to all people. The final chunk of scripture here. Paul says, how then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not obeyed the, all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing, and hearing through the word of Christ. See, you and I have been given the gospel, and that's the free gift of righteousness and salvation given by God to all who believe in his name. If you are a believer, you have to, I want you to think back to the moment that you were saved. Now, I'm not saying you need to be able to say, you know, pinpoint, well, at 11.36 a.m. on, you know, Sunday, July 4th, you know, 1996. I don't even know if that was a July 4th that day. But at, that's the point I was saved. No, that's not my point. My point is when you came from death into life, for some of you, that was a long process. You got to know somebody who was a believer and you, they hear, you heard the gospel over time and you believed. For some of you, that was a quick process. You heard the gospel and then you, you were convicted of your sin immediately and you believed. But what's the common thread there? You heard the gospel. See, salvation comes by hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. There is not a time where you're going to, no one is going to be able to say within, without any outside influence. They're not going to wake up one morning and say, hmm, I've never heard of Jesus, but I know I need him as Savior. You're never going to be able to, you know, God will step in sometimes. You can see how Paul, Christ came to, the road, to him on the road to Damascus, but he still heard. The gospel comes by hearing. Faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. You respond in faith through obedience when, when the gospel is proclaimed. So we've been commissioned to take the gospel to those who are around us who are not saved. And that commission was given to us by Christ himself as one of the last commands that he gave us before his ascension into heaven. Matthew 28, 19 through 20, he says, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. 
See, the commandment to preach isn't just given to pastors. It's not just given in the context of the weekly gathering that we're participating in right now. It's given to all believers in all times, in all places. As we were watching the Truth Project video earlier, he, made the question, he asked the question, are we to abandon culture or confront it? Or conform to it? Of course, we know that we shouldn't conform to culture. But I would posit to you that one of the greatest fears of Christians is to abandon culture. And that's one of the greatest mistakes of Christians. See, when we abandon culture, we run away from it and we, we don't enter into the world. The Bible says that we are to be salt and light into the world. Jesus says, do you hide a lantern under a bushel? No. You hold it out for all to see. See, Christians are called to go into the darkest places in this world and proclaim the light of Christ. We can't live in a bubble as much as we may want to. See, Savannah and I, we, I told you we have a toddler. Her name's Piper. She's about this tall right now. She's got blonde hair. She's got really curly hair. She's super cute. I love her. But you know what? If God one day calls my child, I won't be able to get through this really well, but if God one day calls my child to go into some foreign mission field and die for the sake of the gospel, so be it. There is nothing greater than to go and pursue the gospel and take the gospel to nations. Take the gospel to people who need it. I read a book recently. I want you to understand the principle here. He says, Christians shouldn't be hiding in their own corners. Christians should sit in the smoking section. And what he's saying here, I understand, you know, my mother's asthmatic and obviously she's not going to sit in the smoking section. But what he's saying here is, go to where people are congregating. Just as you and I gather together, so do non-believers gather. They may not gather in formal churches, although in fact in Atlanta there is a, a church of the atheist. Like they've, they've grown so much to where they have multiple services and I have no idea what they gather to do other than they come together and sing and I don't know if somebody gets up and I honestly don't know. What are you, you going to sing about? Who are you going to sing to if you don't believe in anything? But it's growing so much because people need community. People desire to be together, to know one another, to have the intimate relationships of people who you can walk in and know them. This morning, I walked in, and I've hugged probably 20 people. And I knew all names, you know, it's been, it's been over a year since I've been here. It's been several years since we attended. I know everyone's name that, I, that we've known for so long. Y'all know my name. That's intimate relationships. I can walk in and feel like it's not, yeah, I haven't left. And that's the kind of relationships that we are called to have with one another. See, God chose to include us in this glorious mission called the gospel. He doesn't need us. He doesn't need you or me to go and tell. If he wanted to, he could simply speak like he spoke this world into existence. And all who, would under, who will believe would believe, would come and understand. He could play, paste it in the sky, but that's not what he chose to do. 
So if you're a believer this morning, I encourage you, step out of the bubble. Step out of what's comfortable. Make some friends that that you may not understand everything that they believe. Find the people in your neighborhood who are not believers, who are not involved in a church, and take them some cookies and say, hey, I want to get to know you. We live in the South. It's not weird to take people food. That's what we do. And so it's okay. Go and make those relationships. Build relationships with others so that you may take them and and be able to speak into their lives and share the gospel with them. If you're not a believer this morning, I encourage you to, to think and say, you know, today you have heard that righteousness comes from Christ alone. You've heard that you are a sinner, that, that God has chosen to save us. And so I encourage you to respond to the gospel. If you're a believer, follow the commands of the gospel. See, verse 16 tells us that not everyone will believe. And it'll often be discouraging when people refuse to accept and obey the gospel. But that should never dissuade us from boldly proclaiming the message of salvation to all those who will die without it. There is no hope other than the hope of the gospel. And so that is what we have been given and that's what we have been commissioned to proclaim. So I encourage you, as, we, as we're going to transition into a time of reflection and a time of response, I encourage you to ponder the gospel, to ponder the commission that Paul has said. He says, faith comes by hearing and hearing the word of God. Pray for those who you know that don't believe. Seek out those who are in need. Look for opportunities to take that hope that's within you to those who need it more than anything else in this world. As we reflect and as we respond, if if you're a non-believer today, I encourage you to, to, to hear the call of the gospel. If you need anybody, if you need to have some time to come and to pray, I encourage you to do so. If you'd like to speak with somebody, I know Pastor Matt and I will both be up here and we'll be able to talk to you and and pray with you. But I encourage you to ponder these things so that we can go forth out of this place where we have Christian fellowship and love for one another and into the world so that we may make disciples of all nations and, and we will be part of, because God has invited us, to be part of the process that results in the glorious time where in heaven every tribe, tongue, and nation will declare the glory of God together for eternity. Bow with me as we pray. God, you are good. God, there is nothing that we can do without you, but we know and we are thankful that you have saved us. God, I pray that you will take us and give us a fire for the gospel so that we may, as as men and women who have been called out of death into marvelous life, can give hope to those who need it so desperately. In your name I pray. Amen. This time of teaching is brought to you by Abner Creek Baptist Church. For more information, visit www.abnercreekbaptist.com.